Hey, it's Tom. This episode, I had almost an hour with Matt Jafoon, who is one of the co-founders of Occupier, which is an early stage startup here in Boston, building some technology and a business around serving occupiers of space and the brokers that help them with their space needs. So uh, I feel like we could have gone for a couple of hours. I was, I've only had one coffee with Matt before this chat. Uh, this was the second time I've ever spoken to him and he just blew me away with how sharp and thoughtful he was. I felt like we could have gone for a couple hours, so we'll get Matt back on. Um, but I hope you enjoy. Tom. There he is. Hey buddy. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in, uh, I'm at the, we work at one Lincoln which is like a new one that I've never been in before. So I was just like scrambling to find a quiet place. Sound loud and clear. Yeah. I'm in one of these like, um, like modular phone booths. Oh, nice. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm in like a, like a space pod or something. <laughs> hey, will you say your last name for me? Jafoon. No way. Yeah. Soft G. No shit. Man, that, yeah, out of the a, six ways I was thinking about it, that wasn't gonna be it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, it's a doozy. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thanks for doing this. No, I'm pumped, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm interested in getting uh, into the, you know, podcast world a little bit more. Not necessarily starting my own, but at least being a guest and seeing what kind of, you know, um mileage we can get out of it yeah let's jam it around a bit and see how it goes cool um introduce yourself if you don't mind however you want to be introduced do you want me to do that to you to the audience or just like um i guess to the audience cool uh hey uh my name is matt jafoon i am the co-founder uh a co-founder of occupier we are a deal and lease management software platform for commercial tenants and tenant rep brokers. Say that. Um, give me the tagline one more time. That's a mouthful, no? Uh, which one? The like deal. So you are, case? tell me what the, tell me what occupier does again. Sure. Uh, occupier is a software platform that is used by tenants and their tenant rep brokers to collaborate through the lease management and deal management process. Got it. Okay. Um, so just to kind of get a little bit more of a feel for who you are, tell us a little bit about your path. Oh man, how far back do you want me to go? However um, far you want. Man. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in central New York in a, in a uh, suburb of Utica, New York, um, which uh, is about a four-hour drive from where I live now in Boston. Um, I went to Bowdoin College up in Brunswick, Maine, and I graduated from there in 2003 uh, with a degree in uh, not having a job. And, and that's kind of what led me uh, into commercial real estate. Um, 2005, I landed a job as a financial analyst at JLL. Um, at the time, they had a really small office in Boston, and I was a uh, you know an analyst on their uh, tenant rep practice group. So just like running all the numbers and spreadsheets for all of the deals that their clients were doing, and 
eventually I just kind of graduated into becoming a broker. I spent nine years at JLL, uh, all told, um, eventually managing some huge accounts like Iron Mountain, Cisco Systems, um, and just doing transaction management. So um, leasing space for tenants, leasing space for landlords was kind of like my uh, wheelhouse as a broker. And then 2000. Uh, 14, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Andrew Flint, who is now my co-founder at v, uh, at Occupier, uh, at the time, uh, VTS, uh, which is a leasing and asset management platform for owners, was in the process of launching after their uh, like Series A round. And uh, I, I was hired there uh, to basically explore expand the Boston office, um, expand the Canadian presence, and eventually did some enterprise sales there. Spent about four, four and a half years at VTS. And uh, that kind of ended in 2018 in the summer where Andrew and I, along with some other folks, uh, not all from VTS, uh, started Occupier. And, you know, we've been in business for about a year and a half plus um, and just kind of building on, you know, my commercial real estate expertise, if you want to call it that, and my experience in a tech company, uh, just bringing some new tech to uh, a place that is largely, you know, managed offline. If you, um, so you've been a broker on both sides, on tenant side, on ownership side, and you've been early at a fast growing tech company on the ownership side, and now you're building an organization to be a tech organization on the tenant side. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Is there anybody that knows more about this shit than you? Um, I'd argue no. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you've probably, been on you know, both sides in a bunch of different roles. I'd love to hear a little bit about like what you've learned and what you take to your daily job today. Yeah. Well, my daily job is pretty hard to define because, um, you know, we're early stage, we're nine people and my job changes hour by hour, day by day. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be another discussion for a completely different podcast. But I think um, <laughs> maybe my, not. Maybe we'll get to it. Well, yeah, maybe we'll get to it. But the the uh, you know the the background that I have in commercial real estate obviously helps with understanding the uh, problems of our end using customers. So, like as you put it, you know we are tackling the tenant side of commercial real estate as a general landscape. Um, but there are a ton of specific problems that exist not only directly for the tenants, but also for their brokers, um, and, and running their business that, you know, the, the list of products that we could potentially build for this group of users is just like endless. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I spent most of my time representing companies, whether they were tenants or landlords, just going through the process of leasing out buildings or finding office space. And as a broker, you're, you know, you got a lot of pressure on you to perform. And, you know, it's just our opinion that the tools that are used by the brokerage community are really lackluster. And I think that's what attracted me to VTS back in the day. I was, I saw their initial platform and understood exactly where it was going and thought that, wow, this just seems so obvious to me. Um, and you know, like fast forward eight, nine years, um, from when they started and now everybody's using it. So uh, the whole idea of occupier was why isn't this happening on the tenant side? It's a bigger market. There are more potential users. There's more money at stake in terms of brokerage commissions on the tenant rep side. There's a huge outlay of cash by these companies on an annual basis to occupy space. 
And, you know, a lot of the major decisions that happen during that process are all, you know, over phone calls or handshakes or paper proposals that are being emailed back and forth. So there just seemed to be a lack of good tools to efficiently manage that process. So that's where the idea of Occupier was born. It was basically, you know, not an epiphany, but just like a, a, a kind of, you know, foundation being laid over the last like 10, 15 years of just seeing this problem and learning this problem and living the problem. And then just finally kind of coming around to say like, now's the right time to do it. Can you take us to a year and a half ago being around a table, like trying to found, you know, this organization, like how did you, how were some of those conversations? And like, I'm always interested in how people like pick names for, for their business. Do you remember some of those chats? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the name part just kind of came to me. It was just like, this is, this is a really good name. I was always kind of like of the mindset that single, uh, word names were like a, an easy way to name a company. Um, you know, at VTS, we were initially view the space and I think we shortened it down to VTS because it was like, a little bit of a mouthful and then didn't represent exactly like what the uh, product would be eventually. Um, I think it's a great name now. They have an unbelievable brand, but with occupier, it was like, well, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to evoke in terms of who our audience is and what they are doing? And just occupier just seemed to be a great verb, but also a great uh, noun for that side of the industry. Um, And it was shocking to me that the, domain was available uh for purchase at a very uh, low price and we just like hopped on it um so we we got the we got the url and just from there um you know just started putting some software code behind it but you know the the work there was a lot of work put in before coming up with a name it was really more just of an idea right so you know nights and weekends just trying to figure out what the problems are that you're trying to solve talking to a lot of end users and customers and getting that feedback. So you're, you're acting like a product manager, you're acting like a salesperson, you're acting like a consultant all to just gain enough information to inform your decision of like, okay, is there an opportunity here to build a business? How big is that business potentially? You know, what are some of the initial problems you're going to solve for the end user? And what do you actually then need to do to form the business, fund the business and launch the business? So there's just like a lot that goes into it, but I think you have to just like start taking those early steps or you'll, you'll never, you'll never launch. Was, um, was your former career really helpful in doing some of that customer research? I think so. Did you go out to brokers that you knew? Did you go out to people that you had helped find space? Like how did you get those meetings to go out and, you know, show up with your questions like, Hey, what's painful and what should we do about it? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I I would encourage anybody that's in whatever career they're at, whether that's a job that they hate and they want to get out of um, to realize that the relationships that you build with people, you never know when those are going to come in handy. You know, there were days when I hated my job as a broker, of course, and I wanted to get out of it. Eventually I did, but like, I also was able to meet some incredible people who were willing to give me their time when, when I needed it. And these are some people that I hadn't talked to in like four or five years that still, you know, remembered the work that I put in from that for them or just valued the relationship enough to help. So yeah, like the 
it wasn't so much like the market knowledge or the process knowledge, all of that can be learned. But I think it's the relationships that you build with people who are uh, willing to help you is, is where we started or where I started. It was like just exactly how you mentioned it. Talk to, you know, tenants that you help represent and their lease, uh, their office space searches, uh, brokers that you knew from the business that, you know, may have the problems that you're trying to solve and just asking them questions. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot. I mean, you just need to talk to people, um, ask them what bothers them. And, and then the conversation ends up being longer than, than you think it's going to be. So um, for sure, not only just on the job tactics, but also just getting to know people um, was just like super helpful in coming back to, you know, get, you know, getting at the root of the problem. How did you guys decide what to build first? Um, like you said that there was an endless amount of things that you could build, mm-hmm. tons of problems and adjacent things that you could spend time on. Like, how did you make the decision? I guess, what did you build first and why? Well, the first thing that we built was a deal management tool for tenants and tenant reps to collaborate through the process of planning, um, uh, building a requirement selecting a site, negotiating a lease, basically the end-to-end process of like, hey, I need space for 30 people. I need to hire a broker. I need that broker to help me find sites. I need to whittle that site down to a shortlist. I need to tour them. I need to negotiate with several landlords at once. I need to analyze those proposals. I need to eventually select a building and then I need to execute a lease. And then I need to occupy that space. And then it's like this endless kind of carousel of that happening over and over, um, which really like never ends, especially if you're a growing organization. So where our initial idea came from was like, you know, looking back at VTS, it was like there was so much efficiency gained when um, the agent of a building on behalf of a landlord scrapped their spreadsheet and started logging real-time deal updates into VTS. And that was kind of like the most basic problem that VTS solved initially. It was like, okay, like I just need to centralize all of the communication of, uh, of, of leasing out my property portfolio. So if you look at an analog to that on the tenant side, back when... I was working on behalf of say Iron Mountain who had, you know, 150 deals going on at any given time, you know, managing that over a spreadsheet and a multitude of emails is not only inefficient, but it's dangerous because customers um, don't know what they're agreeing to. They can't find the information. There's multiple versions of every document. Everybody's working off of a different um, signal. So the idea was what if there was a place where you could manage that pipeline of leases in one place where the tenant rep or the transaction manager could uh, do all the things they need to do to get through from point A to point B in the process and, and, and at, at the same time give full visibility and transparency to the customer, like that would save people a, a ton of time. And it would also just give the data to the end user, the person that is making the most important decision in one place. So you know, you don't need the spreadsheet. You don't need the weekly call. You have everything there in one place. So that the initial product was just like, there's got to be a transparent, efficient place for deals to be managed. Um, and that was basically based on talking to customers. So we talked to customers. We asked them, do you have this problem? How bad is this problem? Would you like it solved? Would software solve this problem? And we just kept getting yeses and yeses and yeses. So, you know, once you start getting people interested, and then it just gets more exciting. So you start thinking about like, what would it look like? So that's what we did. Did you show back up to those same people that said yes, yes, yes to everything with a proposal, with a price tag on it for, you told me you had this problem, here's what it costs? 
Yeah, and some of them are our customers today, or some of them are I love our that, earliest man. customers. So the whole idea is like, it's just sales, it's enterprise software sales. You're not always just like saying, hi, buy this. It's just like, what is your problem? What problems do you have? Awesome. Let me, let me, let me ask if this resonates with you. If, if, it could do, if it could do this, would you be willing to spend money on it or at least convince someone else in your organization to spend money on it? Oh, it has to do this, this, and this too. All right, cool. Give me some time. We'll come back. We'll have another meeting. We'll show you the progress. We'll prove that we've solved your problem. And if you're telling me that, yeah, this is an X amount dollar problem and I'm willing to put Y budget against it, then um, would you like to explore a contract? So yes, the answer is, of course, like the first customer that we landed was DraftKings and they're obviously an awesome brand name and you see them everywhere. Um, but at the time talking to them, um, you know, our guy Mac there was the, just like the, the lone guy that was trying to figure all this out. So, um, you know, once we showed him mock-ups of what we thought about building, it was like, okay, cool. Like if we build this, will you buy it? And the answer was yes. And it was like, okay, for how much? And the answer was why? <laughs> and we went and built it and they became our first customer. Um, and obviously they, they take a risk on you because you're, you're, requiring their product input and their time and their data and their security to improve your product. But that's why you need to find those early stage kind of adopters. Yeah, that's a, a great point. I'd love to pull on that thread a little bit more. So you and the team built something to my ears that sounds like really the more scattered or the more just volume of deals that your organization has to keep track of, like the more valuable occupier is. So it's, it sounds like out of the gates, you've built it for big enterprises. And then at the same time, you need to find these people that are willing to go first at enterprises, you know, at the, at these big, huge companies, like how hard is that? Um, the hardest thing is just like finding your focus on who that initial persona is that you're trying to solve problems for. Because the, the one thing that is, um, you know, risky is trying to sell something to everybody and not mm -hmm. understanding like what is going to be the most value add for like, say a fortune 550 company versus, um, a rapidly growing startup like DraftKings. So, um, I think that's like where we initially learned that, wow, like our traction is initially on this, just this deal management tool is going to be the most um, rapid if we focus on like high growth kind of middle market companies that have an, an, an immediate problem of, wow, I got to open up all these leases. I have to find all these spaces. I have no idea how to do this. And I have a broker who is communicating with me um, in an analog fashion. So if we could identify more of those, then we can improve that product. We could prove that that market needs this product and we can prove out that there is an addressable market that we can sell into. Um, and then of course, while doing that, you have your kind of long-term eye on, I know that this is also a problem for big enterprises. So you know, let's make sure that as we build this, we are always thinking about how could this work for say Google or Microsoft and, you know, what are the problems that those people are potentially having? So you start opening up conversations with, with those end users as well. And then it just, it just kind of starts to um, 
you know, reveal itself a little bit more about like, what is the next stage of, of product development? Can we um, transition to how it is like how it, I just wrote, as you were talking there, I wrote down brokers, like talking about how you interface with brokers and like whether or not there was any friction or selling to the brokers. Um, well, we have, we have two separate products that could be used by brokers. One of them is sold directly to brokers to solve broker problems. That's our occupier broker CRM. It allows you to centralize all of your client relationships in one place, uh, but in a much more contextual way to their real estate portfolio, not like a generic CRM. So it helps you manage all of the deals on behalf of that client. It helps you uh, provide deal access to those clients. So you collaborate with them in one place. So if you're a broker, like a tenant rep and you're out hunting kind of local Boston tenant rep business and you stumble upon a law firm that wants you to relocate them from the financial district to the seaport, you tell them, hey, listen, I'm not going to send you one email throughout this process. You're going to get a login to Occupier that has a fully built out process, which is how we want to run our tenant rep deals. And it's going to give you full transparency to all the documents, all the data, all the costs, all the fit plans, everything associated with us getting this transaction completed. So the sales pitch to the broker is you could provide this like turnkey um, centralized service to your tenant uh, along with obviously your the market expertise and your knowledge as a broker um, as a sales tool. So that is actually like really rapidly taking off. We're having a ton of brokers inquire about that. We have paid users on that platform. It's been in the market since November. And we're just getting a ton of great feedback on it. Um, there's another place where we interact with brokers, which is via the tenant. So tenants will also purchase our tenant-facing suite of products, which includes the original deal management solution that we created. Um, it also has a lease administration um, platform that we've since built based on um, feedback that we've learned throughout you know, selling the deal management. And then we're in the process of also building like a FASB 842 compliance uh, module as well. So companies can do their lease accounting, their lease administration, and their transaction management all in one place. And if they buy that, specifically the transaction management piece, they can invite their broker into the deal pipeline. So the broker becomes a guest user on behalf of the tenant where they are now um, required to manage every deal, give every update in one central place. So in either case, the broker gets involved usually. Um, sometimes they don't. Sometimes the tenant sees enough value in the product where we don't have to uh, interact with a broker. But um, I think like most brokers today, I mean, VTS did a great job of, you know, beating. On, you know, why and how brokers should be using good technology. So it, it you know, of course, there's always going to be people that push back and they want to use the corporate mandated software or they, you know, are afraid that the data is going to get in the wrong hands of, you know, a competitor or something like that. And just generally don't feel comfortable with tech. Um, I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think as, you know, younger generations come into the business, they're going to expect, you know, good tools like this. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's a battle. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't just single out tenant like commercial real estate brokers as being Neanderthal like creatures that aren't going to like, buy products like this, if you solve like a legitimate on the job problem for them, it's like, whoa, this thing is awesome. Like how much does it cost? And, and then you got to work the ranks and try to get the deal approved. So it's just like a, any software sales uh, really. But I think like more and more tenant reps specifically are 
uh, looking for ways to dif- differentiate. So I think if we play into that um, kind of desire of the tenant rep broker to, you know, be a, a better service provider, then, you know, our, our product makes a lot of sense. Is the CRM product, how is that sold? Is it, is it sold like at the office level or is it something that folks broke individual brokers can you know, self-serve themselves on your website and pump in a credit card and get their own account. Like how is that sold? Yeah. So it's either, either or any, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. Um, That's really new. You said November for that. It. Yeah, we, I think, yes. Um, it's been out in the market for a couple of months. Um, and we have, you know, you can go to our website and find it. There's Occupy for Brokers and you just click on it and it and it asks you if you want to sign up and you just follow the clicks and you have an account. So it's pretty easy for an individual broker to sign up for an account. Um, but, you know, we're also running a playbook of trying to educate the market, right? So every major firm, the top four and everybody else has a presence in every major city. So, you know, all those all those people need to be aware of, what we can do for them and their, for their tenant clients. So um, the ultimate goal is to obviously have every tenant rep broker that ever does a deal doing their deal in occupier. And that's, you know, going to happen on a ground game, like a grassroots effort of going from Boston to New York, to Chicago, to LA and everywhere, and just presenting the product to every broker. Um, it's also going to happen from a, you know, online conversion where, you know, these people are literally looking for good tools to do their business. And if we could capture their, you know, their, that audience on our website and allow them to start using our product literally that day, then that's obviously a thing we want to do as well. So I think eventually, you know, we start moving up the food chain into the corporate suite of the JLL CBREs. Newmarks, Colliers of the world, and you know it's like hard to ignore us. Yeah, absolutely. What what was it like, or what do you remember about the transition from, you know, if we follow your path back to being at JLL and then VTS and then making the jump to Occupier to being a co-founder? What was the transition from? Like, was it hard for you to become a founder? Um, I mean, I think the tactical nature of it, no, because it's really just about putting the work in, um, if you really want it and you really think that this is something that, um, is going to be meaningful in your life, then you will do it. Right. So like, there's a couple of aspects to starting a business. One is like, what is the problem that you're solving and, and who are you solving it for? And are are they willing to pay you money for it so that your company can generate revenue and become valuable. And then the other part of that is like, how are you going to deal with that in your personal life? Uh, What are the goals that you're trying to achieve personally or for your family based on starting this business? Is this the best thing for you to do for your own personal well-being and your family situation at the time? I have young kids. I had really young kids two years ago when I started it. And, you know, there's a lot going through your mind. So I think the most difficulty is like the kind of the mental health aspect of it where, when you first start talking to somebody about this idea, you are quite, you know, possibly the dumbest guy in the room, even though you may think you're the smartest guy in the room. Right. (laughs) So you could be, you are either like, you know, Monday you feel like you're the smartest guy in the room because someone, you know, says, yeah, I'd buy that product or I will buy that product. The next day 
you get laughed out of the room. You feel like, am, am I, am I, am I really onto something here? So I think you just have to keep taking those smaller steps in order to kind of gain that momentum. And then like you look back after three, six, nine months and you're like, wow, we've actually made some progress here. I feel this pull based on all the work that I've put in that this business is actually on the right track and will be successful. So, you know, then, you know, that just, that flywheel starts spinning and it becomes a little bit easier to, um, you know, put it, put in the, the daily grind, but of course, like there's problems to solve every day. So there's no, there's no like easy path. Um, but really it just comes down to like, do you have a curious mind? Are you willing to tinker on that problem for a long time before you figure it out? Um, and then are you willing to then take the steps away from a comfortable job and, you know, jump off the cliff? And I think that that's kind of like, for me, I always wanted to do it. So it wasn't too hard especially if you have great partners like Andrew and Eric and people that you've worked with in the past, um, it makes it a lot easier. It's really interesting that you went there to like the mental and psychology aspects of starting something new. And, um, even the personal side, like how did you navigate, you know, leaving a job to start a business with little kids? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just like, what do you want to do? Was the question I asked myself. And I just wanted, I wanted, I didn't want to look back like 10 years from now and be like, Oh man, I wish I did that back then. And the kids aspect of it. Like I have a amazing wife who works probably more than I do. And she's really focused on her career. So, you know, you just look, you look at <laughs> you look at the financial situation and you're like, what is my drag coefficient here? If I'm an entrepreneur and am I going to be able to, you know, survive for X period of time? And it's really like a little bit of math and it's a little bit of gut. Um, so you have to just, uh, uh, you figure that out. I mean, obviously if I was, uh, unemployed completely, I had no income and left my job, I would need somebody else's money in order to even survive, not much less, start a business. So I think it's just a little bit of calculation and figuring out what is your kind of sweet spot and what is the timing. That's great. Um, I guess talking about actual funding, like when I was going to try to do my research, it looked like you guys had a fundraising event last year. Like, can you talk about, I guess, just funding the business at first compared to maybe where it is today. And I have a placeholder here that I want to talk about, like how your team is set up today too. Sure. Um, so we initially seeded the business with our own capital uh, among the co-founders to, to get a prototype built. And, um, you know, that, that helps obviously um, being able to bootstrap it for a little while, but then we quickly realized that there was, just like a lot of hiring that we needed to do and a, um, a strategic market out there that we could tap into from an investment perspective that would help us like propel the business. And by that, I mean, real estate brokers, people that we sold VTS to back in the day, ex clients, just general people in the real estate market that would trust us, understand our ability to execute and believe in our, our uh, business. Um, so, you know, after we left VTS, you know, we, spent a fair amount of our time raising money from the real estate industry. And, um, you know, that 
culminated in us initially raising like a million and a half of kind of pre-seed capital. And then, you know, we continued to bring strategic investors into that as we've um, grown. Um, so I think like fundraising is one of those things that like, if you want to go the route of raising money, um, you, you have to put the effort into it. You have to find the right targets. Um, you know, you can spend a lot of time talking to people that will probably never invest in your business. Um, so, but, but it's really, it's really hard to say no to people that might want to hear about it because you're like, Oh, well, these people might give me a million dollars, so I should talk to them, but you got to do some research. You got to figure out, have they invested in commercial real estate before? Do they understand this space? Is this going to be a long education process for that investor group to understand really how big your market is and who, what the problems are and are there, are they acute enough? So that's why we decided to go directly towards like individual or commercial real estate focused investors that understood the problem that you didn't have to spend three or four meetings um, educating the entire partner group on, you know, commercial real estate one-on-one. Um, and, you know, we've been fortunate enough to get a couple of really forward thinking VC firms in um, as well. And, you know, we're, we're just able to execute more with that capital. There's a really good lesson there that I wouldn't have had before talking to you. It's like, if I was going to go out and raise, I guess I would like dump a list of seed stage investors in Boston and New York, maybe, and then just start like a bloody knuckles cold calling campaign. But after hearing you say that, that sounds so stupid. Uh, it depends on what your business is. If you're, if you're trying to build like a consumer app that needs to get X amount of downloads in order to, you know, even be on the radar of people that would invest and those investors are all over the place. It might be a little bit to your favor to just do a little bit more of a mass campaign. Um, but I just believe that for our business, we have such a specific like vertical focus on one side of an industry, which by the way is, is, is a huge, um, you know, dollar opportunity that it's, just seems much more efficient to go to people that have capital and understand these problems and have had invested in similar or adjacent businesses. And, you know, that's not hard to find with a little bit of research, but yeah, you do have to, you do also have to do a little bit of canvassing. I mean, you don't want to just hope that you get introduced to the right people. Um, but like, you know, throughout my career and Andrew's career and, you know, we've been fortunate enough to work on behalf of or with people that just know, others in the investment industry. So it is interesting that when you do get traction with one person, you're always going to get an intro off, off of that too. So, Hey, you should talk to these guys. Like if, if, you know, if, if I'm interested, this guy's going to be interested. So there's a little bit of a network effect that goes into fundraising as well. Um, and that obviously works in your favor if you have a good product and your, your revenue is growing. Um, but we also had like a little bit more of a, you know, canvassing approach too. I mean, in our HubSpot, CRM, we have a pipeline just for investors. So, you know, every time you hear of an investor that has put something, put some money into commercial real estate, we would track them and put them in our system and make sure we know who the partner is that is investing so that, you know, if, if we're in, in the next fundraising mode, it's more like, okay, Hey, we know that you've done this. This is what we've done. Let's kind of cut to the conversation a little faster. How, um, like when you're trying to raise money, does that take 100% of your time? And like, how do you decide from the co-founding team, like who's going to lead there? I think that's unique to any business. Um, 
I've heard advice on all ends of the spectrum. I've had people tell me that, dude, like you should have one person that is 100% focused on the company not running out of money. And that person should be out there making sure that they're talking to every investor all the time, making sure that they're under, aware of your business, bringing in money, et cetera. I've, I've had other people say like, that is a complete distraction. Wasting, running, raising money is a complete distraction. You should only do it when you really need it. Um, so like there's you know, obviously different schools of thought in there, but really what it comes down to is like, what does your business need? And like, who is the right person or people to be doing that? from a fundraising perspective and then what are the other jobs that need to get done in the business in order for it to survive and who's going to be doing those so it's just more of a conversation so um you know as i mentioned earlier like you know my co-founders everybody contributed to the fundraising to some to some extent whether it's going to meetings or straight up just like getting their friends to invest um getting their connections to introduce them to certain people so you know the the way we approached it was you know we have equally capable people to have these conversations and then if something becomes real then it's like let's narrow it in and figure out you know who's the right person to be leading this relationship um obviously as we grow you know there's going to be much more focus on like you know the the ceo's role in running uh, a process of raising a lot more money um so that'll probably change a little bit but like you know we're, we're a team. So everybody's aware of what we're doing. We're transparent. The whole team knows who we're talking to, what meetings we have. You can look on our Google calendar. So, um, it's not like we're sending one person off to Siberia to be like, Hey, go find money. <laughs> come back and, with a bag of like, cash. Come back, come back with cash. And Oh, by the way, here's what else is going on with the business. So what else, um, you specifically, you know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that it can be like hour to hour what you're focused on, but what else, what are some of those other things? Um, well, people have different philosophies on how they work, but I like to block my days off with like certain bigger tasks. Um, but if you look at our business, it's like, is the, what is the product? The most important thing is the product and that it's actually working and people are using it and solving problems. So we spend a lot of time as a team on product development, product management. Um, so that's a huge chunk of time and that requires talking to customers, uh, talking to prospects. Um, you're just distilling all of that feedback, grooming the roadmap, um, talking to anybody that is going to help inform what the right call is at any given time for product. It's a constant flow. Um, and then, of course, you got to then build the product. So the engineers need to understand what the end goal is, and then they need to be deployed kind of engineering tasks. So that part of the business is like a nonstop thing. You know, whether I'm spending every moment of my day on it is another thing. It just depends on kind of the intensity of what we're trying to do at the time. Um, but then, of course, sales is a major component of what we're doing. We have three awesome sales people, um, and we have two very capable co-founders who can sell as well. So I think, you know, there's, there's just so much you can do on customer development that, um, you know, you have to have a little bit of, of a, uh, drive in order to kind of make sure that you're always selling something. But at the same time, you have to have a little bit of focus on like, who's okay. Who's managing the pipeline. Who's the person that's putting the processes in place. If you have too many people like weighing in and focusing on that, it, be, it can become kind of a distraction. So, um, 
you know, that's where there might be a division of labor in terms of like, Hey, I'm Andrew's going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to meet at the end of the week and figure out like retrospectively what worked, what didn't. Um, and then, you know, product sales. Um, and I would say just like recruiting, finding the right people to work at your company and making sure that you're hiring the best and that everybody uh, is aware of what you're doing. I mean, we're not necessarily hiring immediately for any specific role right now today, but we're always talking to people that could be values, value-added employees for our, our, our company, because we know that if we're successful in hitting our goals, we're going to need to hire people like ASAP. So that pipeline needs to be thick and it needs to have awesome people in it. So just always talking to new, new people. So product sales um, and recruiting are probably the three main like core focus areas and then of course like when you're in fundraising mode that's going to take a lot of time too can we go like another layer deeper on recruiting and building a pipeline of great candidates like how do you approach that like tactically i guess um i think what we found is that like hiring from within your network when there's a known entity is always the safest um because there's like a rhythm already that is in place for the people that you're working with. Um, of course that still requires you convincing them to come work at your company. So you have to, you know, go through the whole interview process and have, you know, have a really consistent way of how you're evaluating what you're hiring for. What are the traits and characteristics that make up uh, a good person on your team? All that stuff needs to be clearly defined up front and graded and, um, compared to the other candidates, um, tactically though, like, you know, at at our stage, we're just, we're just flying as fast as we can and trying to figure out like what holes need to be filled at any given time. So it's like, Oh, you know what? We have this bottleneck here that is really related to, uh, design. Like we're great at crushing engineering tasks, but what's holding us back is that we're not hundred percent informed as to what we need to build because we don't have a good designer. So that's like a, a good example of like, okay, well, let's hire a designer. Um, yeah. Well, hiring a designer might take us three months. Okay, cool. So are there contractors in our network that we've worked with in the past who could help give us some kind of relief in the interim? So you're always, you always have to have like a bench of people that are willing to do some work for you. And then you always have to be on the lookout for people. So like we have some great, contractors that uh have been working with us too and and like maybe you convince that person like hey like would you join us full time like we'll pay you salary and benefits and you know us we're awesome people you're an awesome person let's work together so um we're not at the scale yet where we have like a recruiting function within the company and we're trying to like just mass hire like a sales and engineering staff and when that happens i think we'll probably have to get a little bit more dialed in on on what our process is got it how did you learn how to do most of this stuff? Like the stuff that you're talking about doing, like being able to build a pipeline of potential people to hire, um, building product roadmaps, learning how to like block time and manage your time as well as sell. Like how did you learn how to do all this stuff? Just by doing it. Do you start by like if if somebody hits you with a task that you aren't um, to a level of you know expertise that you want to be like do you go out and read first or do you just start? Yeah, I mean you do a little bit of research to figure out like is this something that I'm even capable of doing and like how long if not like how long is it going to take me to learn how to do it 
And if I learn how to do it, am I even the best person or right person to be doing it? And, you know, what are the trade-offs if I do this um, versus, you know, well, we use like our, our, our website is hosted on WordPress. Andrew's mother helps us update that website because she is a web developer. And it's like, we found out that like Andrew's mom is the best person to help us <laughs> develop our homepage. So it's like, I'm not going to spend my time doing that. If the other things that I just mentioned earlier are like a little bit more, you know, needle moving for the company. So we can, you, you just realize that, okay, there's gotta be somebody else that can do this and I'm going to go figure out how to get that resource. So I don't, profess to be an expert on a lot of the areas of the business. I think I'm an expert in understanding real estate transactions. I think I'm an expert in selling software. And I think I'm an expert in just like convincing people that this is a good idea. Like, I think that is like my core focus and in listening to people and understanding kind of that product feedback. But when it comes to actually developing the product roadmap, near-term, mid-term and long-term, and then deciding what we should build, what we should wait on, like you rely on other people, you get experts, you get smarter people than you in the company that help you do that. And it sucks to be told sometimes no, or your idea is stupid. And like, here's why not, not in those words, but, but you got, you have to have that thick skin. You have to understand that, you know what, like I, we hired this person to tell us what to do in this scenario. So like, let's, let's have them do it. And, and, and then you trust in the process and in the people. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't know how to do everything. It's just, you, you pick up, you pick up where you need to pick up and you figure out how to get it done. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like the, the process of learning, I guess. What, um, like coming up here in 2020 and 2021, um, like, what are you hoping to accomplish as a team, like what's on your whiteboard at home and at the office that you're going to spend most of your time on trying to solve? Um, well, you can break that down into a couple of different categories, which track to the ones that I said before. So product, um, we are in the process of putting some enhancements into our deal management solution, which we've heard from specifically brokers that are needed. Uh, in order to get them to adopt the software more. So we're building out like proposal generation tools, more deal tracking tools, uh, basically tools that help you take a lot of that paperwork off your desk and put it into Occupier. Um, so that's happening like in the absolute immediate term. And then 2020, uh, we're spending uh, the bulk of our efforts from an engineering perspective on building our lease accounting module, which is something that um, is just like gravely needed in, in the lease administration space. Um, most companies, believe it or not, still either outsource their accounting to a CPA firm um, for too much money or um, don't even know that this problem is coming um, because there's this new transition to different standards for accounting of uh, leases within your uh, balance sheet. And just the demand for that software is so big that there's a huge market and it's just barely penetrated. So um, we're going after that market and not just because we think there's a big market there, but because our clients and people that we talk to as prospects have said, your, your software is great. We need to also do this. So that's just like a huge signal, which is driven, which is like, okay, let's go build that so that we could capture a part of this market. So in the near term, 
call it 2020 into 2021, it's building kind of like the three legs of our stool, which is deal management, lease administration, and lease accounting. So that every real decision of consequence that a company is going to make uh, involving their real estate can be done in our platform. And then from there, you want to make that better. You want to get more product feedback. You want to figure out other things to build. But um, so from a product management standpoint, that's like our near-term focus. And then sales is like, how many people can we get to buy this? over what period of time and what point of revenue does that get us to where we can say, okay, like we could go hire more people or we could go raise more money where we can invest in other products and stuff like that. So uh, like I said, we have an awesome sales team. We've, we've plussed up our outreach uh, over the last month. Uh, I think we booked like a hundred plus meetings last month alone um, just for like prospects uh, from outbound and inbound. And um, so build, building that sales pipeline will s- certainly help us you know, get to the next level. And then, you know, people wise, we want to make, we want to make our employees like want to work here forever. Um, we want their lives to be better. We don't necessarily think that our, their job is going to be the only thing that makes them happy. So we want our employees to come to work every day, but also realize that they have a job outside or a life outside of work and they can spend as much time on that as, as they do like writing code or figuring out problems or selling the software. So, um, keep, keep the team focused and happy, uh, build the product better and like sell more of it. <laughs> That's a good way to sum it up. I got two more questions. One is what did you do differently or, um, any changes or tools that you adopted to generate a hundred meetings in that period of time? Um, yeah, we use a couple of tools. So our, our, sales tech stack is kind of, um, you know, it's evolving, but we've, we've gotten a lot of, um, traction out of, um, just email sequences within HubSpot. So all the salespeople who are reaching out to specific personas will basically build, you know, three to five email sequences into that persona. So if we're selling into director of retail or director of real estate or director of finance or something like that. There's specific messaging that we'll put into the sequences that would resonate based on, you know, what problems they're having at their job. So we will um, just, just upping the outbound uh, email email, I think is just like indispensable tool for sales. Um, if you can sprinkle in some actual phone calls into that, uh, that actually helps. I don't think cold calls have ever gone away or will go away. I think there's, an aspect of the job that, um, will always require that. Um, but we also use a couple of different resources. One is called seamless AI. It's a great tool for linking into your sales navigator account in LinkedIn. So, you know, our sales reps will figure out that, okay, I'm going to go after this persona this week or today. Uh, I'm going to query that in uh, sales navigator within LinkedIn to come up with a huge list of people that match that persona. And then it hooks into this thing called seamless AI, which um, basically is like a zoom info or something that gathers all of their contact information for you and then imports it back into your CRM. So then you just kind of click those people off. You put them into the sequence, you click send, and then those people are getting automated emails based on the message that they should be receiving um, for your product. So email marketing, I think for us has been huge. Um, And, you know, on top of that, we're hopefully giving the sales team some air cover, um, by just Andrew and myself, just like working the crap out of our networks. Um, 
going on roadshow visits. We're heading out to Seattle next week because we have a, a pretty good core user uh, group out there of, of our software. And, you know, once you get a stake in the ground in the city with, say, one brokerage firm, then eventually everybody's going to need to know about it and will know about it. So the faster you could proliferate that um, kind of viral broker approach, um, the more we're going to get the hands in broker, uh, the product in the hands of brokers and also tenants. So, um, you know, you, just getting out and seeing customers, I think, is also one of the things that will never go away that always extends the life uh the, the lifeline of that potential deal or um just puts you in the good graces of people that want to see your product so um we're just you know people we just have really awesome people that are focused on their job like the, at the end of the day like the, the person doing the work has to be happy with what they're doing and if they're not they're not going to do the work which means the product's going to fail the business is going to fail so um just keeping people motivated giving them the right tools and you know just setting metrics for success that are, you know, lofty, but attainable. Last question is um, not one that I had on my list, but just kind of listening to you talk about um, your employees and making a great place to work. I guess for you personally, like what strategies do you use to be able to integrate work and life? personally or like at Occupy? yeah i guess personally like I, i'm just really you are so sharp and thoughtful and i'm sure you've spent some time thinking about you know being a dad and being a co-founder and and trying to balance all that stuff and i i don't know if if work-life balance is right or if it's like work-life integration like it there's so much overlap and and i feel like in your job there's probably not much like okay here right now I am at work and right now I am a dad or a husband or a, a brother or a friend, like just thinking about that stuff in general. Um, yeah, that's a learning process to be honest with you. You can become really obsessed with one thing in your life and have other things suffer as a result of that. <clears throat> and I, you know, that's the last thing that I want to have happen personally. Um, you know, sometimes I actually let that happen and, you know, it's to the detriment of other people around me. So you have to be aware of that when that's happening, um, whatever method you need to use in order for you to be aware of that, I would recommend whether it's like, you know, some sort of mindfulness exercises, if it's talking to somebody, whatever it is like that is, will help you 100%. Um, but like, I think what tactics I try to employ are just like setting boundaries um, and just being able to modulate the, you know, the mode that I'm in and for the situation that I'm in. So if I'm at work from say 8am to 5pm, cause I have to pick my kids up from school or the bus at 5pm, then it's just like 8am to 5pm I'm in work mode. And then I know that I have a million other things to do that are kind of piling up in my inbox after 5pm, but it's time for me to be dad and like bring my kids home, get them, get them dinner, try to get them into bed by, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock, at which point then it's like, all right, I should probably spend some time with my spouse, see how her day went. And then, you know, you, you're, you're, you're a husband. So you're, you're drawing these lines so that you're not, you know, constantly looking at your phone or, you know, just neglecting certain things, but there are certain realities every once in a while where you're like, Hey, I, I gotta, I gotta go back to the office or I need to log on tonight and just get this proposal out. You know, obviously that's part of being an entrepreneur and just being a, a working person in general. Um, but you just need to, I guess, try to keep some sort of semblance of, um, you know, I, I guess you said balance across all of your, 
different aspects of your life. And I also think that you should find some outlet to get rid of stress, whether that's like exercising or meditating or reading or walking or whatever it is. Um, so try to put some of that personal time back in as well. Cause I think one of the things that, you know, I personally have suffered at is like you, your, all of your personal time gets absorbed. So all those things that I just mentioned are pretty, that's a pretty packed day. So unless you have like that one hour or so of your own life where you could just be who you are, and maybe that's just staring at the wall and thinking, you know, whatever it is, like, I think that's really important. So, you know, there's not very much, there's 24 hours in a day. There's not very much, um, time to, you know, waste, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, kind of like mental, um, I guess like collateral damage if you, if you don't, you know, hit pause every once in a while. Yeah. We, uh, we went right to two o'clock. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap this thing up? Uh, just thanks, man, for having me on. It's been great chatting. I loved the previous episodes and I immediately reached out on LinkedIn about, uh, getting involved and, you know, keep, keep doing what you're doing. I, I, I think, uh, having people share their experiences is the best way to learn. So, um, you know, and to any, anybody that's listening that our, you know, message resonates with occupier.com. Love it. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it, man. All right, Tom. Take care, buddy. See ya. Talk to you soon. Bye.